uh, a place for you to open to because we're going to, we'll be talking about what's in the Bible, don't worry about that, but we'll be, uh, we'll be skipping around from a lot of different places, so there's not one place that we'll be camping out. So uh, feel free to try and keep up if you'd like, or uh, if you want to be um, the hero, feel free to try to keep up with me. Um, I was going to say last year, this is actually probably late 2021, I decided that I was going to set myself the goal in 2022 of reading through the Bible in the year, and I wanted to do it in a calendar year. And at the time, I knew it was going to be uh, an ambitious goal because there were a lot of things coming down the pike for us in 2022. We knew we were going to be packing up our whole family. We are going to be coming back to the States for a furlough. We were going to be traveling around the country. We're going to be living in my parents' spare rooms and in Caitlin's parents' spare rooms. We had a wedding, uh, and hopefully we would eventually get settled somewhere and have our own little place, which finally did happen. Um, so anyway, I, just, I knew that there was going to be a lot going on in 2022, so I thought, well, I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to get through the whole Bible in the whole year. Um, but hey, you know, better to shoot for the lamppost or shoot for the moon and hit the lamppost than uh, shoot for the lamppost and hit something a little bit lower. But um, I actually was able to make it all the way through the Bible in the year. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're doing that, when you're reading through the Bible or reading just through an individual book, sometimes there are certain things that tend to jump out at you. And one of the things that I noticed as I was reading through the Bible was that the Bible tends to focus on the extraordinary moments in the lives of the heroes of the faith, which is probably a good thing. Um, you know, if you are reading the Bible from beginning to end, there are certain parts that you tend to get more excited about, and then there are certain parts that it's like, oh boy, here we go again. I know, tabernacle, you know, the ge genealogies, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, all the dukes of Edom, um, you know, you have the, the construction of the tabernacle or the temple, and, you know, you got the bases and the knops and the flowers and the ram skins dyed red and, you know, all those, all those things that, that you're familiar with if you've ever read through the Bible from, from beginning to end. Um, and you know what, there's, or, or wave offerings, you know, you get into Leviticus and you have all the different kinds of, of, of offerings. Uh, you know, have you ever noticed that whenever you pick up a, a, a child's illustrated Bible, that there are certain Bible stories that just never seem to make it in there? For whatever reason, the wave offering always gets skipped. You never open an illustrated children's Bible and see the wave offering in there. And there's a reason for that. You know, the Bible was not written to entertain, it was written to inform. And so there are parts of the Bible that just aren't really uh, that interesting, which is, once again, probably a good thing, because, you know, if the Bible actually did um, talk about you know, for example, you have all the, the heroes of the faith, you know, it tends to focus on the high points of their lives. If it told us all about their lives, even the uninteresting parts, A, uh, you know, the Bible would probably go from being about that to thick to about this thick. And number two, we'd probably never read the Bible because we'd just get bogged down in the amount of material. Uh, but there are a lot of, um, you know, there are some things in here that are, are, are not the most interesting, but there's a lot of, lot of exciting parts, a lot of things that we can read, uh, a lot of high points, a lot of low points, which, like I said, that's kind of what the Bible tends to focus on. And the way I see it, there are, are three main uh, types of events that the Bible tends to focus on. Uh, number one is high points. Uh, we all love high points. Uh, for example, you have King David's coronation. That was a high point in his life and also a high point in the life of the nation of Israel. Or the dedication of Solomon's temple. That was another high point. Then you have low points. Uh, for example, Job. Uh, his life opens and 
everything's fine, but then real quick, we get into a very low point. He loses his health, he loses all his, uh, he loses his family, he loses his possessions, and so it's a very, very uh, low point in his life. Or the exile to Babylon. Uh, any way you slice it and dice it, that was a low point in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, and then you have what I like to call combo moments, because you have low point and high point mixed together, or comeback moments. You know, kind of like you're watching a football game, and it looks like you're about to lose, and all of a sudden it's a pick six, and they take it all the way down the field, and they win the game. Um, it looked like things were going to go down very poorly, but then something happened, and things changed around. Uh, for example, you have the time when the Assyrian army was coming to attack Jerusalem when Hezekiah was king. And it looked like this was not going to end well. The Assyrian army had been taking over you know, all the known world, and it looked like Judah was about to be a bug on the windshield of <laughs> the Assyrian truck. Uh, but something happened, and God showed up. And he sent his angel and massacred a large portion of the Assyrian army, and the, whoever was left went home with their tails between their legs. Uh, another comeback moment is uh, David versus Goliath. Now, we tend to think of that as a high point, but before it was a high point, it was looking like it was going to go down as a low point. You had the Philistines that had invaded. They had this big old champion. All of Israel was quaking in their boots. They were afraid to go out and fight, and it looked like this was going to go down as a defeat in the history of Israel. But in this case, it wasn't God that showed up. It was just a young man. He um, stepped out in faith. He saw a need, and he went out and fight, fought the giant. And what looked like was going to go down as a very low point in Israel's history got flipped and all of a sudden it became one of the highest high points in the Bible. I mean, open any child's Bible, and I'll guarantee you'll probably find the story of David and Goliath, just about any children's Bible. Um, so anyway, so there's, there's a lot of those high points and low points, and there's a lot that you can learn from those. You, know, you can learn from the high points. There's a lot of good stuff there. You can learn from the low points. A lot of times when we're having a hard time, we like to you know, take our Bibles and read about Job, or there's a lot of Psalms where David is pouring out his heart to the Lord, and we can find comfort in those, uh, reading those and, and reminding ourselves that, that God still cares and that we're not the only ones that have ever walked uh, a mile in not very comfortable shoes. Um, but, you know, as I was reading through my Bible last year, I, I was reading and it was like high points, high points, low points, high points, low points. And I found myself not really relating to a lot of what I was reading because my life is not mostly mountaintops and valleys. It's mostly just, you know, kind of ordinary life. You're just kind of living your everyday life. Nothing, nothing too exciting, nothing too bad, thankfully. You're just, you know, kind of the daily grind, getting things done, checking things off the to-do lists, adding things to the to-do lists. And, and that's, that's most of my life. It's just kind of ordinary, uh, boring sometimes. Um, which boring is not all bad. Um, you know, those of us who sometimes have had, sometimes there's been times when I've had a little bit too much excitement in my life, and then I just wanted it to go back to being boring. Um, but, you know, we as human beings, we tend to gravitate toward the, uh, the sensational. You know, we tend to pick on the news media sometimes because, you know, all they ever do is report the things that are, that are, that are sensational, that are out of the ordinary. But imagine if instead of reporting the things that were 
that were, were special, that were noteworthy or newsworthy, as we'd like to call them. Uh, imagine if you tuned into the evening news and they said, today we have a special uh, news bulletin for you. Mr. Jones went to work. He earned money and paid the bills. Like, how is that newsworthy? That's nothing special. That's not, what I, that's not why I turned on the news, to hear about somebody else doing the exact same thing that I just did today. Um, or, uh, you know, breaking news story, Mrs. Jones keeps the little humans alive. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that, that's what all of you moms are doing all day, every day. I mean, there's not, nothing, nothing special about that, that. Nothing, nothing noteworthy or remarkable about those types of things. Um, and so, um, let's face it, you know, our lives, for the most part, are, are not terribly interesting. Uh, most of our days would never get a mention in our biography, and that's assuming that our lives were even important enough to warrant a biography. And so it seemed a little odd to me as I'm reading the Bible that, you know, so much of what I was reading didn't really seem to relate to my everyday lives. But then I realized that the ordinary lives of the heroes of the faith are in the Scripture. You just have to look a little harder to, to find them. So let, let's take a look at a few heroes of the faith, but instead of focusing on the high points and the low points that we always tend to, to focus in on, let's look at the, the untold stories of the heroes of the faith. Uh, we're going to start out with Noah. Now Noah, his story opens out at a low point. Arguably, this is the lowest low point in all of history. You know, we as uh, conservatives, sometimes we can get frustrated when we can't get together 51% of the population so we can get our guy in the office. But hey, you know, at least on Sunday, we can come to church, we can fellowship with like-minded believers, we can encourage one another, we can build each other up. Noah didn't have that. He was alone. He was the only one left. That's a low point right there. Then, of course, we know the rest of the story. God comes to him. He says, you know, I'm going to wipe out the earth with a flood, and I want you to build this ark. And then the Bible just kind of skips over 120 years of Noah's life. What was going on? Well, he was building a boat, cutting down trees, waiting for them to dry, buying tools. He probably enjoyed that part. Um, he was working on his perfect pitch, which is not the singing pitch. This is the pitch that was going to keep the ark from leaking. You know, just imagine if the Bible recorded in detail the whole process of Noah building the ark. It would have been like watching paint dry. You know, day 16 of working on pitch. You know, today it's too runny. Yesterday it was too lumpy. We'll try again tomorrow. Maybe we'll finally get it right. Well, thank goodness he finally did get it right because the only reason that we exist today is because Noah got the pitch right. And along with a thousand other little details that had to be just right in order for that boat to make it through the greatest cataclysm that the world has ever seen. And so, you know, there may be times when you feel like Noah. Maybe you feel like you've been saddled with a job that's too big for you. Maybe you feel like you're working on a job that just seems to take forever. Well, Noah, Noah can empathize. He was, he's been there too. His life wasn't all the high points and low points. There was a lot of boring, long, uninteresting work that was sandwiched in between those things. And then, of course, we know the rest of the story. They get in the ark, all the animals, all the rain, rainbows, they come out, start all over again. Um, but there was a lot of, of ordinary life 
sandwiched in between those exciting bookends of Noah's life. Uh, let's look at the next person. This is Moses. Once again, Moses' life starts out with a low point. Uh, you have the, the Pharaoh. He's trying to massacre all the baby boys. And then you have a Bible story-worthy story where God comes in. Uh, Noah gets put in the basket. He gets rescued by the princess. He gets adopted into Pharaoh's family. Great Bible story. And then, and then what? Then, once again, the Bible just kind of skips over 30-some-odd years of, of Moses' life. What was, he doing during, what was he doing during that time? We don't really know, although judging by the fact that he got adopted into Pharaoh's family, my guess is he was doing a lot of studying, probably a lot of math, a lot of language arts, probably some PE in there, um, probably learning how to ride, learning how to do politics, how to behave yourself in, a, in, uh, in the throne room. And uh, obviously, we know the rest of the story, all things that were very important for him to know, but I'm sure there were times when he probably was thinking to himself, when am I ever going to use this in real life? <laughs> when, 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 when is real life finally going to start? When can I be done with all this studying and get on to living life for real? And so, you know, some of you out there, you might be in that same place, whether you're still in grade school, high school, maybe you're going to college, maybe you're an adult going back for some continuing education. You might be thinking to yourself, this is kind of pointless. Uh, why am I doing this? Am I ever going to use this? When is real life going to start? Well, Noah probably wondered those things too. He probably had some of those same thoughts, some of those same feelings. And then, of course, we know the rest of the story of, of uh, Moses. He goes and he tries to rescue the children of Israel in his own strength. It doesn't work out very well. And so he gets stuck out on the desert, on the backside of the desert for 40 years taking care of sheep. And once again, you know, some of you may feel like you're stuck on the backside of the desert. Maybe you feel like you're taking care of sheep. You've been given a job that's not very interesting. You've been given people or things to take care of that uh, aren't very fun to take care of. And once again, Moses, Moses feels your pain. Maybe you've made some mistakes in your past, and you feel like God's done with you. You've been exiled to the backside of the desert, and you're going to live out the rest of your days there. That's probably what Moses thought. But obviously we know the story, and uh, God actually had more things in store for, for Moses, a lot more things in store for Moses. So let's move on to the next person. This is uh, someone who we don't necessarily think of as a hero of the faith, but this is Hannah, the, the mother of Samuel. Once again, her life starts out in a not very good place. She's unable to conceive. She's not able to have any children, and um, she eventually hits rock, well, and to make matters worse, her husband has a wife who's very fertile and has absolutely no qualms reminding Hannah about that on a regular basis. And so eventually, uh, Hannah just hits rock bottom, and she goes to the Lord, and she pours out her heart, and God comes in, and God does a miracle. He enables her to conceive. And then once again, the Bible just skips over several years. You know, what, what happened between the time that Hannah conceived and when she came and delivered Samuel to Eli in the temple? Well, all you moms probably know that story quite well. A lot of nursing, a lot of diapers, sleepless nights, teething, training, potty training, all that fun stuff. And while I'm sure Hannah was busy doing all of those things, I, I feel like there was something else that was going on at that time. You know, why was it that Samuel turned out to be so very different from the sons of Eli? I have a feeling that it had something to do with that time that he spent with his mother. She was not just keeping the little human alive, 
She was investing in him. She was training him. She took her role as a mom seriously. And the, the results speak for themselves. Samuel grew up to be a man who loved the Lord, who hated bribes, who did what was right. He walked in righteousness. And I suspect that a lot of that had to do with those early years that he um, spent with his mom. So, you know, I'm sure there were times when Hannah just felt like all she was doing was keeping the little human alive. But thank goodness she did, because we needed that little human. And um, so, moving on. Uh, David, King David, except he didn't start out as King David. He started out as little brother David. Uh, you had the story where uh, Samuel comes to town. He invites Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice, and David doesn't even get to go along. It's like, why does David need to be there? He's just a little brother. If somebody's got to take care of the sheep. We'll leave him at home. And then we know that God had picked David to be the king, and so eventually David gets called and he gets anointed. And that was, I'm sure, a very high point in his life. David had a lot of high points in his life, but that was probably one of the first, one of the best. Um, but then what happened? Did he immediately get cap catapulted into the spotlight? No, as far as we know. What did he do? He went back home and took care of sheep. You know, doesn't seem like very exciting. We often tend to focus on, uh, you know, the next big event in his life, which was the battle with Goliath. But one of the things we forget about when, or one of the things we, we might forget about is that David's battle with Goliath was not his first rodeo. Before he fought the giant, he had already fought a lion and a bear and had killed him. And so he had been taking care of his sheep in a very intentional way. He was willing to lay it, all on the life, lay it all on the line for those sheep. And I don't know why God picked David to be the next king, but it wouldn't surprise me if some of it had to do with how David took care of his sheep. God realized that this whole thing with Saul was not working out very well, and he needed a replacement. And he's looking around, who am I going to get to be the next king? And then he saw David. He's like, I like that guy. I see how he takes care of his sheep. I need somebody to take care of my sheep. I'm going to promote him from shepherd to king because I want him taking care of my people. So you may be uh, sometimes feeling like you're a shepherd, taking care of sheep, maybe doing a job that's not very important, but I can guarantee you God's watching. God is looking for people to promote. So do your best to be the person that God wants to promote. Like I said, maybe you're taking care of kids. Maybe you're taking care of, maybe you're a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you're a shift manager at work or something like that. Those people are your sheep. And God is watching how you take care of those sheep. So do your best to impress him. All right, so next person here uh, is Jesus. I'm going to jump into the New Testament. Obviously, the story of Jesus starts out with just a flurry of activity, all kinds of exciting stuff. You have angels, and you have uh, wise men, all kinds of miracles. I mean, just the fact that Jesus was, existed was a miracle. He had the virgin birth and all that kind of stuff. But then um, he just kind of, well, and then I guess you have, you know, he's born, Herod tries to kill him, they flee into Egypt, then they come back from Egypt, and then once again, 
he just kind of disappears from the pages of scripture for, for 20 some odd years, with the exception of going to the, uh, the temple when he was 12. But if you, if you don't look at that, the Bible just kind of goes dark on the life of Jesus. Like, what was he doing? I mean, this is the son of God. I mean, wouldn't you want to know a little bit more about the, the life of the son of God? I mean, surely he was doing some really exciting things, some amazing things. Or maybe he wasn't. You know, when he finally stood up and said that he was the Messiah, people were like, you, the Messiah? You're just a carpenter. What had he been doing all those years? Building chairs? Keeping the bills paid? Presumably his father passed away at some point, and so he had to take on the responsibilities of being the man of the house. And so he had to keep all the plates spinning. And so, but he was right smack in the will of God that whole time. And so sometimes we might feel like that's all we're doing is just keeping the bills paid, keeping those plates spinning. Well, hey, Bible says that the, uh, the servant is not above his master. If the master could live an ordinary life and just keep those bills paid, take care of the people God had given to him, we can do it too. All right, the last person I want to look at here is the Apostle Paul. Now, if you want to look at somebody who lived an exciting life, look at the Apostle Paul. You open the book of Acts sometimes, you read that, uh, and maybe especially when you're a missionary, you, you tend to compare yourself with other missionaries. You probably shouldn't be comparing yourself with Apostle Paul. I mean, that's just kind of setting yourself up for, for being depressed. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you read it and you think, wow, you know, what an amazing ministry. He just like zip, zip, zip. He's just like jumping around from place to place and preaching the gospel. And, and sometimes it goes great and people get saved. Sometimes it doesn't go so great. And, you know, he has to flee in the middle of the night. Sometimes he gets beat up. You know, sometimes it just all kinds of these amazing miracles that are happening, except that that wasn't always the case with the Apostle Paul. There were quiet times in his life too. But once again, you have to kind of look a little closer for him. When he went to Corinth the first time, it says that he continued there a year and six months. That's a long time. The Bible doesn't really have a whole lot to say about that year and six months that he spent in Corinth. I mean, what was he doing? Probably some teaching, preaching, counseling. Problem solving, probably some tent making. Once again, not, not, not a whole lot of glamorous, noteworthy stuff. And then he goes back to Corinth on a subsequent trip and says that he was there for two years. And then on his last trip to uh, Jerusalem, he stops by Ephesus to say hi to the, uh, the Ephesian elders, and he mentions that he was there for three years. That's a long time. And so for those of us who are in ministry, and that's all of us, um, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a parent taking care of your kids, there are going to be times when you might feel like not a whole lot's going on. You're just kind of sowing and watering, sowing and watering, and there's not a whole lot of reaping going on. And maybe you think that something's wrong with you. Well, the Apostle Paul went through those periods too, when there wasn't a whole lot of exciting things going on. He was just sowing and reaping laying the foundation of the church. And so if the Apostle Paul could do it, we can do it too. So let's move on. Now that we've looked at the ordinary lives of some of the heroes of the faith, let's look and see what the Bible has to say about the ordinary. The Bible might not tell a lot of the stories uh, about ordinary life, but it actually does have a lot to say about the ordinary life, which makes sense because that's where most of us spend our lives is just living ordinary life. 
Um, and this is stuff that we all know, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded. Uh, we're going to start out with children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother. So kids, you want to know what God wants you to do? Obey your parents. And oh, by the way, while you're obeying them, honor them too. Because it's possible to obey and not honor. So you got to get both of them in there. Uh, for, the, for the wives and the mothers, it says uh, in Titus 2, 4 through 5, that they may teach the young women to be soldier, soldier, sober, to love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Husbands, fathers, it says, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. That's pretty stiff there. So guys, we know exactly what we need to be doing. We need to be providing for our families. But it's more than just providing in a material way for our families. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. So our job is to provide not just for the material needs of our families, but also for the, the uh, emotional needs, the spiritual needs, whatever needs they have. That's our job. Our job is to take care of them and raise them and love them and, and build them up as Christ did for the church. All right, for those who are in ministry, which once again, I think is just about all of us, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. And then we have Colossians 3.22-24, which it's addressed to servants, but we could swap out uh, employees for servants. Servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. So if you've got a job, you've got a boss, uh, you know what you need to be doing. The rest of the passage here is a great um, summation of this whole, this whole section here. It says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. You know, you can do anything for the Lord. Anything can be done for his glory, be done in a way that would make him proud. And so that's what we need to be striving for. We need to be looking to approval, looking to him for approval as opposed to, to other people or for other, um, yeah, other people. Uh, you know, who do you go to for a pat on the back at the end of the day? I hope you're, I hope you're going to the Lord. So moving on, now that we know what we're supposed to be doing, how should we go about doing it? As we all know, there's a lot of ways in which you can do something. As we say, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. Um, so let's look at a few passages of Scripture that kind of talk about how we should be living our everyday lives. Romans 12.11 says, Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know, if you're going to do something, you may as well do it well. You may as well do it with all your might. You know, it usually doesn't take a lot more time to do something well than it takes to do it in a sloppy manner. So if you can do it well, do it well. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you're uh, falling all over yourself trying to get out the door for church on time and the house looks like a hurricane went through it. That's okay. Uh, happens to us too. And you just got to come home and clean it up. Sometimes that's just the price you have to pay to, for getting to church on time. But you know, if you can do things well, do them well. Uh, 1 Corinthians 29, 12. This is David speaking to Solomon. He says, now I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God, the gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, the brass, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, sometimes I'll see advertisements for these debit cards 
and you can you know, click a little setting, and when you buy something, it will round up your purchase to the nearest dollar and take those, those, those pennies and nickels and dimes and throw them in a savings account for you. That's not how David saved for the temple. <laughs> he was not saving pennies and dimes. He was saving buckets of gold and silver anytime he could. He says, I've prepared with all my might. So if David could do it, we can do it too. We can do things with all of our might. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Probably some of us are thinking, yeah, well, but you don't understand my situation. There's not a whole lot to rejoice in here. Well, that's not the end of the verse. The rest of the verse says, And again, I say, rejoice. You know, sometimes life can get pretty rough. Sometimes we can get pretty low. And sometimes there's not a whole lot to rejoice in. Um, But we know the end of the story. And so if there's nothing else to rejoice in, we can at least rejoice in the fact that we know everything will end well. And sometimes that's all there is to rejoice in, and that's okay. But the Bible, God wants us to be full of joy as we're going through our life, doing our everyday lives, focused on what's right instead of what's wrong and rejoicing in that. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.22 might sound kind of odd to be jumping back into the Old Testament as we're kind of talking about more of New Testament living stuff. But hey, Solomon had some good things to say, and uh, they got included in the Bible for a reason. So we're going to jump back and grab one of the gems that Solomon had. So Ecclesiastes 3.22 says, Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. You know, Solomon was writing in the Old Testament. He didn't necessarily have the benefit of having the New Testament perspectives that we have, but he was trying to answer the question, you know, what, what's the meaning of life? Like, what should I be doing with myself on an everyday basis? How should I be living my life? And his conclusion was that, or one of, he had several conclusions, but one of them is right here. He said, there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. You know, there, one of the rewards that God has for you that you can get now, you don't have to wait till you get to heaven. One of the rewards God has for you is the joy that can be found in doing everyday tasks, in doing them well, and doing them for the Lord. There's a simple joy in that that uh, is very valuable. There can be joy in the mundane things of life if you will let there be joy. Now, there's a lot of things that can steal that joy. Uh, for example, sometimes people try to wiggle their their way out of the work that God has given them to do. And sometimes we're successful in that. But there's not a whole lot of joy in that. The joy comes from doing what you need to do and doing it well. Sometimes we lose our joy because we're trying to do too much. And you know you're trying to do too much when you start getting frustrated. And when you're getting frustrated, you're not living in joy. And so sometimes it's better to do less Sometimes we're, we try to be overachievers. We're trying to do everything. And Solomon says, slow down. Do what you can do. Do it well. Rejoice in it. And you'll be a lot happier. And your cortisol levels will be lower too. <laughs> and then the last thing is that can steal our joy is that sometimes, and we would never say this out loud, of course, but sometimes we feel like we're too good for the job that God has given us. We think, oh, man, why am I wasting my life doing X? I mean, I could be doing something better with my life. I mean, 
I, I, I'm good at this, I'm good at that. You know, why am I wasting my life here? Well, God gave you that job, so that should be reason enough to do it and do it well and to rejoice in it and be thankful for the fact that God has given you a part to play in his, his plan. All right, so don't spoil the joy of the mundane by wishing you could be doing something greater. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Obviously, we're supposed to be giving thanks, but it's hard to give thanks if you don't have a thankful attitude. Sometimes I catch myself going through life with a chip on my shoulder, and I'm frustrated because this didn't work out or that didn't work out. I don't feel like I'm getting what I deserve. Well, that's not a thankful attitude. You know, we need to realize that we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. And anything that we get in this life is an undeserved blessing. And when we live life with that focus, then it's a lot easier to be thankful. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whither therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. One of the most mundane things that we as humans have to do is eat. Now, some of us like eating. I happen to like eating. Um, But sometimes I think, that I could get so much more done if I didn't have to stop and eat every few hours. (laughs) And I'm sure those of you who are fixing the meals out there are thinking the same thing. You don't have to just fix a meal for yourself. You've got to fix it for all these other people. And sometimes it's snacks in between. Um, But the Bible says that even eating and drinking can be done for the glory of God. So if we can eat and drink in a way that brings glory to God, then surely we can do other things in a way that'll bring the glory to God. Once again, who are you looking to for approval? When you're, when you're going through your life, doing your things, who are you looking at? Who is, who is the person that you are conscious of? Is it the Lord? Are you doing things so that you can look good? Or are you doing things to try to make God look good? You know, there's, uh, it's, it's a very warm, fuzzy feeling to know that you've made somebody proud. It's a good feeling, whether it's your wife, whether it's your kids, whether it's your parents, but there's nothing better than knowing that you've made your heavenly father proud. All right, so now that we've talked about how we should live the ordinary life or what we should be doing and how we should be doing it, by now, I think we should be pretty confident that how we live our ordinary lives is pretty important to God. But I just want to throw a few more verses in there about the importance of how we live our ordinary lives. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine says, Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. One of the heroes of the faith we haven't talked about yet is Joseph, as in Joseph with a coat of many colors. He was a young man who went through some pretty low points in his life. Of course, he had some pretty high points as well. And then there was a lot of ordinary life in between where he was just working in Potiphar's house, working in the prisons. And even once he became uh, prime minister of Egypt, I'm sure he was a very busy man, building all those cities, storing up all the food. Um, But Joseph was a young man who was diligent in his business. And the day came where he literally did stand before a king. So if you're going to do something, do it well. Lamentations 3.27 says, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. 
Now, arguably, there's something to be said for all of us having something to do to keep us out of trouble, whether we're young or whether we're old. But for whatever reason, the Bible singles out young men here and says it's good for them to bear the yoke. Now, I don't know about you, but a yoke is not something that I usually want to cozy up with. Yokes are hard. They're confining. The, the whole point of a yoke is to connect you with work. Just not something that we enjoy. But the Bible says that it's good for a young man to bear the yoke in his youth. You know, when you have a young person who has borne the yoke of work and responsibility, there is a maturity there, there's a gravity there, there is a, um, a level of integrity that you can't get any other way. So it is good to bear the yoke in your youth. Luke 16.10 says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Sometimes we look at these heroes of the faith and we think to, them, think to ourselves, how did they wind up in that position? Why did God entrust them with such a big job, an exciting job? Why did they get to do all the fun stuff and I'm just little old me kind of stuck here not doing very much interesting? You know, is there like a, a heroes of the faith school that I need to go and enroll in or something like that? Well, there is. It's called everyday life. You had these before they were heroes of the faith, these were people that were just living their everyday lives, not doing anything special, but they were doing it to the glory of God. They were doing it with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. And God saw that, and they eventually got promoted. And you want to be a hero for God? Be a hero for God in the little things, and maybe you'll get the chance to be a hero for God in the big things. Uh, Romans 8.4 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Once again, why do certain people get the big roles? Why do certain people wind up getting, seem to be closer to God, perhaps? You know, if you will follow the Spirit in the little things, then it'll be easier for you to follow the Spirit in the big things. You, know, you just get thrown into a pressure cooker without training ahead of time. A lot of times things don't go well. You know, when I was younger, I was on a swim team. And the time to practice your technique was not at the swim meets. By that point, it was too late. The time to practice your technique was at practice. Imagine that. <laughs> and practices were not that exciting. I mean, especially, I mean, I think there's probably got to be just about no sport that's more boring than swimming. I mean, what do you do all day? You swim back and forth, back and forth. I mean, you can't even switch things up and swim back and forth this way. It's this way, back and forth, back and forth. It's not exciting, it's not glamorous, but that's where you build your muscles, you build your stamina, you build your aerobic capacity. You're working on your hands and your feet, getting them to go exactly where they need to go so that then when it's time for the swim meet and you jump in to compete and you get thrown in the pressure cooker, it's second nature, you don't have to think about it. And so. The, the everyday, life, everyday lives that we live, that is, in essence, God's gift to us. That's the time when we can practice following the Spirit, walking after um, the Spirit, yielding our members as instruments of righteousness to the Lord. And so that then, when we get thrown in the pressure cooker, we, we just do exactly what we've been doing this whole time. We just lean back, trust on the Lord, follow His leading, and it's become second nature to us. So, um, 
if we're faithful, if we're faithful to live for the Lord in the little things, then regardless of whether or not we become the next Moses, or the next Apostle Paul, then God can say to us what, uh, what the master said to his servant in Matthew, 5, uh, Matthew 25, 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast, been, thou hast been faithful over a few things. Maybe they were ordinary things, boring things, everyday things. Maybe there were some big things thrown in there. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. A lot of times we tend to think of the Christian life and we think that it's all about the big things. But it's not. It's all about living for the Lord in every moment of your life. Following his leading, following his plans, loving the people that are around you, doing what's best for other people. It's not rocket science. <laughs> it's about following the Savior in all the moments of life. Sometimes we think, like I said, that it's all about the big things, but it's really not. It's not about the cards that you have been dealt. It's what you do with those cards. And the good news is, is that the person who assigns the grades at the end of the day is someone is the same person who once observed the widow putting her two pennies into the, the offering plate. We may think, well, I've never really done anything that big, that important. Yeah, but were you faithful in the little things? You only had two pennies, but did you put your pennies in? If you did, A plus. Good for you. 1 Corinthians 10.31 We'll close with this verse. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do. Whatsoever means whatsoever. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear only Father, Lord, we thank you for the day. Thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your plan. Lord, we know that, that some of us may go down in history as being somebody special. Some of us may pass into history relatively unknown. But Lord, we know that we're all known to you. Regardless, we're all your children, and you love us all the same. And yet, help us to keep our focus on you. Help us to be the vessels. In your word, it says that some vessels are made to honor and some to dishonor, and that we have a choice in that. We can choose whether we're going to be the vessel to honor or dishonor. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to live our lives in such a way that would bring glory to you. Help us to be fervent in spirit, serving you at all times. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given to us. And Lord, just help us to, to do our best to make you proud. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.